Here we are, July 1st, 2012, lecture discussion number 72 on the Book of Romans. What that means is, is that there have been 71 prior lectures uh, that build one on the other, and if this is your first one and no one gave you the disclaimer, you are going to wonder what in the world is that crazy person talking about, which is what most people think regardless of where the lecture is, but if you miss the first 71, could be a little tough for you today. I'll do my best to get you along. Um, as most of you are probably aware, I hope you are aware, we're really at Romans 5 right now. That's where we're at. And we're at Romans 5, and whenever you do Romans 5, I hope everyone can see the board. I can't be sure if you can or not. Whenever you're at Romans 5, you have to immediately go to Exodus 20, because that is where the law of Sinai is given, and that is where the law of the altar is, and that explains the verse Romans 5.1, or the great therefore, if you will. And once you go past Exodus 20, you have to go to Exodus 21, because that is the law of the Hebrew slave. And then finally you can get back to Acts 2, which is essentially the New Testament equivalent to Exodus 20, and now back to Romans 5, where we, where we are. Romans 5.1. And uh, it's called, or if you, uh, at least I call it this, it's called the great therefore of the book of Romans. And some call it the great conclusion or the great proof. Um, the thesis of Romans, as you may know, is the just shall live by faith. And uh, the 5.1 of Romans tells you that that has been proven by the time you get there. And that, unfortunately, is not recognized as much as it should be. So Romans 5.1 essentially says this. I'll paraphrase it a little bit for you today. Uh, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God, which those are two big important phrases. By faith, I am justified by faith. Faith is a non-physical thing. It is a mental property, not a physical property. Uh, And so I am justified by something that is non-physical. If it is non-physical, then it is what? It's spiritual, so I am not justified by a, a physical process, much to the dismay of many, many churches who make a lot of money making you think that you are justified by a physical process. But I'm justified by faith. The just shall live by faith, and I have peace with God. Two very important things immediately that come out of Romans 5.1, which if I have peace, then I must have been at what? I had to have been at war, and so therefore, if I'm now at peace, what has happened? Uh, The war has been resolved to some extent. If the war has been resolved, I must have some kind of record of it. I must have what? A peace treaty, and I do. Where is the peace treaty? The peace treaty is in Exodus 20. That's correct. Very good. Okay? So hopefully you got all of that. This is much more or less a review of last week. And I have this peace through the redemptive work of Jesus Christ alone. He, he is the one that provides the peace treaty, if you will, or executes the peace treaty, allows the peace treaty to go into effect. Now that, by the way, is an explanation of your two testaments, because testament is, a, is essentially something that is executed upon what? The death of the testor. So last will and testament. So the New Testament and the Old Testament are now in, uh, been executed by the death of the testor, if that makes sense for you. 
I hope it does. But anyway, the first two of those three elements, the by faith, by have peace, are the result of Christ. That's very important, and that was given to, to Israel at Exodus 20 and 21, exactly how he would do it. As an aside, really fast. By faith is a phrase that Paul uses all the time in the Bible. And when you see it, you understand why he does it after a while, uh, as well as therefore. He uses two words. I said this last week. Someone asked me to repeat it so that I could get it into the record better. They're assuming that I did not do it well enough, and that's probably a good idea to assume such. Therefore and by faith, two phrases that Paul constantly repeats and that is one of the proofs, uh, by the way, along with the ending of the book of Hebrews, that Paul wrote the book of Hebrews. So let me put that back in just in case I didn't do it very well last time. Exodus 20 is where the problem, if you will, is officially revealed. The Ten Commandments, God comes. And I made the comment earlier that God, when God came, he didn't come uh, uh, by himself. He came with, as he always does, he has a huge, uh, if you wish, uh, caravan of who? Yeah, he comes with the angelic host. So that was quite the scene. How many of them are there? Hundreds of millions of them. And he came with them. He also came with his trumpet section. How loud is his trumpet section? He's got a really good trumpet section. It's very loud. So that is a sight. When you, see, you have two and a half million people at the base of the mountain, right? And what's coming? This huge amount of people. What's the, uh, not people, if you, because it's angelic host. But what, what, where is the New Testament complement to this? Where else does God himself come and everybody who is there? i got two and a half million down here. Two, I got two and a half million up here. I got, I got billions up here. Okay. Who knows how many? Where else? Where's the compliment? Where else does this happen? Where God comes and everybody who's there sees him. What are you laughing at, young lady? I did something funny. You're right. But do you know what it is? <laughs> okay. Good. I wondered. Okay, thank you for sitting in the front row and laughing. <laughs> Cheers me up. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, uh, it's faster this way. Obviously, I've done it a lot. Anyway, the point of it is, is you will see this repeated, this God coming with a mass of, of, his, uh, of his army, if you will. He will come with his army, and it's a huge mass. And when he came, I had all the, I had those terrific things that happened. I have smoke, and I have trumpets, and I have fire, and I have languages. All the four signs that happened at Mount Sinai. And he's coming to declare something. He's coming. He officially reveals the condition of man with respect to the requirement of God. In other words, he reveals that there is an utter hopeless failure of man, and he's making it manifest. Everyone now knows where man is. This is the standard he will reveal. Uh, Here is where mankind, that's you and us and them, and, and here is our place with respect to him. That's what he's doing, and he's doing it in a way that no one misses the point. What did they expect him to do? They ran away. What did they expect him to do? Yeah, they thought he was going to kill them. And off they ran. And so at Mount Sinai, Exodus 20, 
Israel, two and a half million of them, everyone knows uh, the problem. They understand what's expected. They know the scope. The scope. They know the magnitude of the problem, if you will. The Creator has come, and He has requirements of His created. He has. He is taking authority, and He is announcing that there is accountability. You don't get to do whatever you want to do. You have free will, but there's consequences for your free will decisions. And currently, mankind, at the time of this and now as well, mankind is a mess. Mankind is marinated and saturated and buried in filth. And the distance between where God is and where man is is unimaginable. So here, I will try to illustrate that. Okay? This uh, white board here, the amazing reversible platinum model holy white board that you see before you that is reversible, which makes it even more holy than other ones. Here is God in the third heaven on his throne. Here is us. The distance can't even be described. Can't be described. We are so far away from him. There is no possibility. It's unimaginably vast. There is no possibility. It is impossible for humanity. I, I, I did this last week. I had a wonderful lady named Karen who came by, and I told her if this is she, she believed she had a. I have to make, count my fingers there. She has the confusion. I do this a lot for you, as you know. I draw the hand of God, and I show you how big you are in comparison to it. There you are. Do you see you? Can you run to the edge of it? No, you can't. His hand is too large. You can't get off the edge. Well, that's with respect to salvation. You can lose your fellowship, but you cannot lose your salvation because the hand of God is unimaginably large. So is the chasm between man and God. Not as big as God, but still unimaginably vast. And it's impossible for humanity to traverse that, the chasm, to climb to God, if you will, to get to God. It's hopeless, it's futile, it's foolish to even consider it. Foolish to even consider that you can do it. And it's even more foolish to consider that the way you do it is by keeping the law. The Ten Commandments or the Torah, whichever law you wish, or even a human tradition. If you think the law is a method or a means of salvation, then you are in a futile event. No one with any understanding of the problem, the distance you have to go, would ever think that you could make it on your own by working or traveling or walking or doing whatever or buying something. No one with any understanding would ever see keeping the law or some kind of physical activity as the solution to the sin problem that man has, the distance between man and God. No one would ever think that. Except who? Yeah, the very evil, the Pharisees, absolutely right. The pharisaical predators. They saw that and said, wow, we can make money off of this. We can have a really good lifestyle. All we got to do, put in a system and convince everybody this is the system that gets you saved. They'll never make it. No problem for us. We get what? We get the stuff. The richest man in every city for the first 10,000, or I'm sorry, first 2,000 years of since, uh, since the Christian church began, was the priest or the pastor. And not much different today. 
Certainly wasn't the framing carpenter, I can tell you that. By the way, people wonder, how many sodas did I drink yesterday while I was... Uh, and they're, they're not really sodas, as you know. They're, they're medicinal. And they're, the only thing that is more powerful medically than a Diet Coke is Worcestershire sauce. I, I, and that's been proven time and time again. Everyone knows it. How many did I drink? So I only drank seven or eight. I did. That I was. When he ran out, I snuck over to my car. He didn't know about it. I think I had ten. How many bottles of water did I have? Three or four, at least. So that's uh, ten cans of soda and maybe five bottles of water, and I got through the day, which is proof again of the power of aspartame. Anyway. <laughs> Do I get lots of trouble for that? Yes, I do. Oh, golly, yeah. They send me all kinds of stuff. Call me on the phone. If Bonnie were here right now, she would jump up and throw things at me. And uh, Anna's back there ready to leap. But it's okay. I can take the pressure. No one with any understanding except for the pharisaical predators, and they would see that this is a possible moneymaker, and they're the very evil, and they seize upon this. They see the opportunity to exploit who with a works-based salvation system? Who gets exploited by it? Who falls for it? Who's the suckers? Where are the sucker fishes? Who's the target for this? Okay, it's the very weak, it's the weak and uh, the people who have no biblical understanding, have no root system, and they exploit them and they ultimately lead people to choose to reject God's specific only provision to satisfy the debt that comes with the law, which is the law of the altar. So you have to understand, he comes at Mount Sinai with the heavenly host and all of these signs, and he presents the law. And then immediately after that, after he presents the law of God, he presents the law of the altar, right? So one is the statute, the other is the provision to deal with the statute. That's how it works. That's why it's in that order. And if you only read the Ten Commandments and you don't read the law of the altar, then you've missed the whole point of Exodus 20. Do we ever have a movie called The Ten Commandments where at the end of the Ten Commandments is the law of the altar? Did Charlton Heston get it? Cecil B. DeMille, did they get it right? No. They absolutely... have to be careful because I'm all over Australia. Hi, Peter. If you leave this out, you have missed the whole point of the Ten Commandments. It's never in the movie. Instead of the movie called the Ten Commandments, we should have a movie called the Law of the Altar. Because that's what the whole Bible is. The whole Bible is about the Law of the Altar. Who is the Law of the Altar? It's a type of Jesus Christ. That's the point. So you get it this way. The Creator came to Sinai. Let's make sure I'm on the right page, because I'm a little rummy. Good. Creator came to Sinai. He revealed his law, the Ten Commandments, the standard, the statute, illustrating the consequences of mankind's sin, the depth of sin, and now the distance that man is from God, the vast difference that now separates man from his God. 
so how so very far man has fallen away from God. And it is now impossible for man to do something. What is it impossible to do? Save himself. Man cannot save himself. It's impossible. It's one of the great impossibles in all of Scripture. So what is the solution? Man can be saved. With men, it's impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Remember Matthew 19:26. So God does every day... And he can, every day, all day, put a camel through a needle, because that's what's necessary. He controls the physical, visible reality. He controls the physical reality. He controls the spiritual reality as well. He can put a camel through a needle. He can solve the impossible. Read Matthew 19, just for fun. The last verse of it. Thus the law of the altar comes immediately after the revelation of the scope of the problem. That's why it's back to back. The only provision, the only solution is given. He says, build me an altar, make sure you make it out of earth, make sure you make it out of stone, and make sure that we're, we put blood all over it. That's the solution. Earth, stone, and blood. Out of that I see the hypostatic union of God and man. I see the humanity, I see the Godhood, and I see the blood. That's the solution. The only solution. That's the only provision. There isn't laws of altars. There's none of this. Sorry for the universalism. There isn't a hundred different laws and a hundred different altars to get to God. There's one law, there's one altar that solves the problem of the law of God. If you don't solve the problem of the law of God, what happens? Death. What kind of death? Eternal death. Spiritual death. So the law of the altar comes after the revelation of the scope of the problem, and it is the only solution. God would become man. The solution is that God would become man. Jesus Christ, creator God, the second person of the triune Godhead, would become man, and he would descend because man can't climb. Simple as that. No solution. Man climbing won't make it. It's too far to go. Possibly do it. Christ would come down to us, and he alone would bridge this immense gap. And the earth's stone blood is the one way this situation, this bleak, hopeless state that has enveloped the whole of creation can be repaired, returned, and restored. So, at the base of Mount Sinai, to repeat it, is the altar made of earth, stone, and blood. And so know the order. The law of God is followed by the earth, stone, blood altar. The problem is expressed, it's presented, and the solution is then provided in detail. And that seems pretty obvious and straightforward to me. I can't understand why it never gets taught, much less gets in the movie. What could possibly go wrong, right? Well, our first clue is what is covered by God. He says, along with the law of the altar, what to make it out of. Make it out of earth, stone, and blood. Do not, he says, do not make images out of gold and silver, and do not touch the stones with any of your tools. Don't put your hands on it. Don't try to make some, don't add yourself to it. Don't try to make me some pretty looking stone. You can't do it. You cannot make your own salvation better. Here's the plan. Stay away from it. 
Don't give me any gold, silver images. Don't hewn the stones. No tools on them. And whatever you do, don't be so, what's the word I want? Dumb. To build steps onto the altar. Quit it. You can't build steps. And he says, all of those things, making images of me, adding yourself to salvation to the altar, and building steps trying to reach me, all of those things are profanity. They're perversion and they're profane. That's how he describes it. Do not pervert my plan of salvation, he says. It is evil, wicked to do so, which of course meant what? As soon as he said it, what did man do? Off we go. We would rush out to do exactly what he said not to do. It's what we do. And we have a whole world filled with it. Every religion. Man would add himself to Christ's redemptive work and then do what? Charge for it. We now have churches that have credit cards. They have ATMs in the, in the, what a brilliant idea that is. Get your salvation here. Buy two. But wait. Adding ourselves to God's redemptive work, insisting on our role, lifting ourselves up, clanging our bells and ignoring every specific instruction God gave. He gave three things. I want earth, I want stone, I want blood. That's all I'm going to take. That's all there is. And mankind went around and did the exact opposite for thousands of years. Lifting themselves up for their own purposes, their own devices and schemes. It's a free will decision. It's a free will decision to do the opposite of God's plainly given word. It's a free will decision to have a works-based, human effort-based attempts at saving yourself. It is the absolute, however, perfect opposite of what God says. I've described it recently many times. You're in quicksand, you're dying, it is hopeless, and you grab yourself by the ears and you try to pull yourself out of it. It is ridiculous and foolish, but that is what? That is what we call church today. That's what's taught. That's what people believe. And I have spent the last 25 years of my life longer than that, haven't I? Last 30 years of my life trying to stop it. How am I doing? Not very good. Getting wiped out. I'm down 50, and I got two minutes to play, and everybody's fouled out. So I know what's happening. Some wonderful people come last week and talk to me, and at the end of it, they said something like, We can't tell our pastor this. And I said, You're right. You can't. No money in this. Look around. What God gave is the opposite of saving yourself. He gave it to Adam when he, when he slayed the first animals, the lambs, and he covered them with the skin and the blood, and he took off Adam's fig leaves, and he said, no, no works-based system. We're going to sacrifice innocent blood for you and Eve. He gave it to Moses, obviously right here at Exodus 20. It's in type and symbol throughout the Old Testament. It's confirmed throughout the New Testament. It's proven beyond any doubt uh, and of any kind. In the book of Romans, specifically, Paul says, uh, it, I proved it by Romans 5. Uh, uh, 
Lisa was saying today, uh, put Lisa into Finland. We're big in Finland, Lisa. So I get a letter from Finland asking me who you all are. It's great, by the way. It's really cool. But um, she said, how could you read the book of Romans and conclude that there's any salvation that is human-based? How could you do it? Well, I don't think you can. You, you can't. But, but yet they do. Billions and billions and billions versus a very small group that is a faith-based, belief-based, grace-based teaching church. His plan, salvation by grace, belief, faith in the name of Jesus Christ alone, is proven by Romans 5. Nobody seems to care because, as I said, there's no value in knowing it if you're trying to sell it. But the truth doesn't matter to them, and it won't. They're the overwhelming majority, and they're going to make their gods of gold and silver, and they're going to pound on the rocks with hammers and chisels, and they have built thousands and thousands of steps to climb that can go nowhere. You get to the end of it, there's nothing there. And they choose freely to grow into death, despair, and waste. That's what they do, instead of following God's given orders. And that's your decision. You can, you can climb steps until, you, until you're tired and exhausted and you've wasted your life, or you can follow God's given orders. Earth, stone, blood. That's the simple. Which one are you going to do? Because you get to choose. You have free will. See me later. Okay. That's the review. That's just to catch you up from last week. Don't even consider the 69 before that. Or how many? Oh, I had 69 and a half and 69 and a quarter, so I know there's... A good 75 others in there. But Acts 2. It's time to take on the often massacred chapter of Acts 2. If I had to pick, and it's getting harder now because it's happening so much, but if I had to pick a chapter in the Bible that is just brutalized incorrectly, it would be, Acts 2 would be on the list. It's just, I don't know what to say other than this. If you start out with this, Acts 2 equals Exodus 20. If you don't, if you try to read Acts 2 apart from Exodus 20, we got problems because you have the four signs. I'll put them on the board so I don't mess them up this time. I have, I have trumpets. Well, let me put it over here. I have trumpets. You know the four signs of Exodus 20. I have trumpets, a trumpet sound. I have thunderings. But you have to define thunderings. You'll be surprised and how it really is defined if no one has ever told you. I have like a fire there. Okay? That's very important because what is like a fire? And I have... Uh, no, no, I'm sorry. Did see what I just did? I mixed the two up again. Trumpets, thundering, flashes, and smoke. Those are the four signs of Exodus 20. Over in... Acts 2, I have the identical four signs just described differently, so I get to put the different descriptions together and figure out what they are. I have a sound from heaven over here. Now, it is obvious that what that is, right? It is obvious that any sound that comes from heaven sounds like a trumpet. It should be obvious. It does not sound like a clarinet just in case you were wondering. Huh? It sounds like a trumpet. And look at it again. Let me repeat it. Sound from heaven. 
trumpet. Wait till you have to deal with that. Now I have, I have languages in Acts 2. I have like a fire. And again, what does like a fire mean? What is like a fire? And I have rushing wind. Those signs are the same signs. And I had put them together this time. I made them the same. So they do this. The same four signs are in both places. And failure to understand the four signs is to begin so badly that you're going to end up with an inevitable dumpster fire of, of theology. You're going to completely, totally misunderstand Acts chapter 2. If you don't start at Exodus 20. Okay, so we need to read Acts 2 and make, make a list. But before we do, uh, I, I need to announce who's to blame for this. Do you, do you know who's to blame for this? Yes, that's right. Jennifer from Arizona. Hi, Jennifer. And soon uh, you'll know why, why we blame Jennifer when we slog through ultra-dispensationalism versus moderate-dispensationalism. And I do things like that during the summer because of the huge draw of crowd that I get when I get into those kinds of subjects. Okay, Acts chapter 2. Let's read it together. And uh, at least I'll read it and you pretend to read it while you do the crossword puzzle on the back of the bulletin. Do you notice Lori's getting more innovative in her puzzles? She is. She's getting a lot better. She's found different puzzles to torment you with. And then we go around and do what? That's right. We collect all the bulletins. And then what do we do? That's right. We process them for fingerprints. And then what? Yes, we find out which one's doing the puzzle during the bulletin named John. That's what we do. Not you. Behind you, John. Two Johns here, but notice how guilty he immediately fell. (laughs) Anyway, and then, of course, what happens next? That's right. We send you uh, letters in the mail. We beat on your door until you give us more money. That's how church works. Everybody knows that. (laughs) Acts 2. Here we go. I told Dave uh, the, uh, that I'll be really tired on uh, on uh, Sunday. And he said, good, good. It'll be more entertaining. And that's really true. So, Acts 2, and we're going to read 21 verses, um, and it'll be obvious why we stopped that. Stop there. When the day of Shavuot, Shavuot, the Hebrew word for the feast day, that many will call Pentecost. When the day of Shavuot had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven again. The trumpet is blowing again on the same day. Thousand, fifteen hundred years or better apart. I don't know exactly. Do the math. Look it up. as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire, and one sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews 
Let me repeat that. And there was dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men. I have devout Jews. Ask the obvious question. Why are they prominent here? From every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the multitude came together and were confused because everyone heard them speak in his own language. You have to understand that. And it makes perfect sense when you go to Exodus 20 and you understand what thunderings are. Then they were all amazed and marveled, saying to one another, Look, are not all these who speak Galileans? And how is it that we hear each in our own language in which we were born? And it goes on to list all the different uh, countries that are represented. I won't read that for the sake of time. Visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes. Okay? So I have all these different places, and they're visiting. They're Jews and they're proselytes. Cretans and Arabs. We hear them speaking in our own tongues. Z. Tongues. Like Hernandez. The wonderful works of God. What are the wonderful works of God? Let me just stop right there. They're hearing the wonderful works of God in their own languages. Is that happening today? No. It's not happening today. They're hearing the wonderful works of God in their own languages. What are the wonderful works of God that they're hearing? They're hearing Scripture. Because the Old Testament is the wonderful works of God. So they were all amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what, whatever could this mean? And others mocking said, they are full of new wine. But Peter, standing up with the eleven, raised his voice and said to them, how many men are here, by the way? How many men heard that sound and came running? How many men are in Jerusalem at this particular time? Why are they in Jerusalem? That's an important question. We'll answer that in a minute. But there's a whole bunch of them. How loud has his voice got to be? He did not have microphones. Raised his voice. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and heed my words, for these are not drunk as you suppose, but it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. Peter knew what it was, and he says, And it shall come to pass in the last days, says God, that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Whose sons? Whose daughters? The sons and daughters of who? The devout Jews. That's the context, right? Your old men shall see visions. I had a, a, a pastor come to me a long time ago, and he says, I am in Joel. He thought he was in Acts, but I said, oh, you're really in Joel. Yeah, okay, I am. I'm in Joel, and I'm, uh, I'm seeing visions, and I'm dreaming dreams. I said, oh, you're Jewish. Cool. I didn't know. Either did he. Ah, Jewish. Well, then you're not doing Acts 2. You're not doing Joel 2. Maybe you'd want to know that. So that you wouldn't run around saying foolish things. 
and on my men servants and on my maid servants. I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in heaven above, and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. Does that sound familiar? The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Okay? As far as we'll go. I hope you notice the immediate necessary, uh, how, how it's immediately necessary to study Joel 2, 28 through 32 in order to understand Acts 2. If you, if you go around telling people what you think Acts 2 means with regard to speaking with tongues and utterances, then you better understand Joel 2, 28 through 32. Failure to recognize that, that's a fundamental aspect. You're off into the ditch, you go careening, bang. You'll hit five things and then you'll go into the ditch. It won't be a clean shot. There'll be nothing left to you or your car. I used to have a pastor friend of mine many, many years ago who said a, a grave was a ditch with the ends cut, or uh, I'm sorry, a ditch was a grave with the ends kicked out. That's exactly where you will be. It's impossible to understand Acts 2 without Exodus 20. It's impossible to understand the Ten Commandments without the law of the altar. It's impossible, really, to understand the law of the altar without looking at Exodus 21 and seeing the law of the Hebrew slave. You have to go in order. And all of those, all of those are required before you start reading Acts 2. So if you're trying to do calculus and you haven't had addition and subtraction, you're not going to get the right answer. And then you're going to say, I don't have the right answer. And I'm going to look at you and say, well, yeah, you left out the problem. Exodus 20 and Acts 2 both have four signs, the four signs, and both occur on the same feast day, the exact feast day of Shavuot. And by the way, what is Shavuot? Shavuot happens to be a pilgrimage feast day. What is a pilgrimage feast day? I have three pilgrimage feast days. How many feast days do I have? I have seven, and three of them are pilgrimage feast days. What does pilgrimage mean? It means coming across on a boat to the United States and stepping on a rock. Yeah, I'll give you that. But it means that if you are a Jew, three times a year on unleavened bread, that does not mean University of Nevada, Las Vegas, on unleavened bread, you have to go to Jerusalem. You have to go to Jerusalem on Shavuot. Okay? Which is also called weeks. It's called weeks because there's seven weeks. The Jews don't call it Pentecost. The Pentecostals call it Pentecost. Okay? And then the last one is tabernacles or booths. Those are your three pilgrimage feast days. If you're a devout Jew, you have to travel to Jerusalem. God requires it. Deuteronomy 16, 16. And this happens to be one of the pilgrimage feast days. This one. The second one. And it is, therefore, a day that every devout Jew would go to Jerusalem. And they're all there. It also happens to be seven times seven, which is what? 
49 plus the day after, which is 50, which is where we get Pentecost from. But it's 7 times 7 plus 1 are 50 days from the feast day of first fruits, which is the day that Christ was resurrected. So it's 50 days from the resurrection. It also happens to be 7 times 7 are 50 days plus 1 are 50 days from the day that Israel crossed the Red Sea. So Israel crosses the Red Sea, and 50 days later, God is at Exodus 20, comes with the angelic host and the Ten Commandments, and explains the problem and gives the solution to it. So it happens again, exactly the same way, if you will, at Acts 2. 50 days from the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And trying to figure out Acts 2 apart from that, from the fourth feast day of God's seventh feast day, there's your dumpster fire again. How many churches are based on Acts 2 in this country? I would guess 100,000. How many of them have any idea what they're talking about? I would guess zero. And I would be right. Thanks for laughing. They'll call here. Trust me, they always do. They don't always. Nothing was more profoundly said than last week when that wonderful lady said, I can't tell my pastor any of this, can I? No, you can't. Not a word. Not if you want to stay there. And everybody wants to stay. And I don't ever ask anybody to leave where they're at because I understand how it works. You can't figure out Acts 2 apart from the fourth feast day of God's seven feast days. And everyone should know that Exodus 20 was a wedding. It's a wedding. I have a mountain. I have a canopy. I have a bride. Israel. I have two witnesses marrying God. That is all a wedding symbol. It is God and Israel getting married. Wife of YHVH. Acts 2 was not a wedding, it was a betrothal, the symbolism of the betrothal of Christ and the church being engaged to be married. So I have the wife of YHVH at Exodus 20, and I have the bride of Christ at Acts 2. Now, of course, I'm bringing this up again because the church has almost completely failed at Acts 2. And there's Romans 5. Romans 5 is about the altar, and Acts 2. And it's a sermon never preached anymore. It's almost completely lost. We don't hear any sermons that tie Romans 5 to the law of the altar, to the law of God, to Acts 2. In this time of, uh, what do we call this time now, of the church? What would I call this the last 50 years of the church? We would have the the uh, time of uh, great missionary work, and we would have the time of uh, tremendous evangelism, and uh, now we have the time of willful ignorance and money. That's what we got. And you're reading the paper. How's this country doing? We're in trouble. We're about to cast off free will in order for a government check. That's what we're going to do. That's what governments do. They get control. They get domination, and they 
They tell you everything, how much salt you can have, how much sugar you can have, what kind of car you can drive, where you can live, and how much you get paid. That's what governments do. What does God call governments in the Bible? He calls them beasts that devour their people. We were a country founded on theology and on free will. Now we are going to be a country that is founded on atheism, cessation of existence, and government control. Will it happen in your lifetime? I hope so. This is my big plan. See the end of this thing. I'm hoping, I'm hoping we're wrapping her up here. I'm hoping it goes fast. It's too bad to be set. And the rest of us, I'm ready to rock and roll. Anna, Anna wants a baby. It happens, it happens. If it doesn't, too bad. Seth wants a driver's license. Hope it doesn't happen. I'm trying to get out of here. <laughs> I, I am, by the way, completely autonomous and sovereign from the monetary system of this country. The stock market can totally collapse, and so can all the states and counties and municipalities. It will not affect my retirement. <laughs> Not a bit. <laughs> and that is a result of my free will, by the way, that I often regret. But I'm, I'm hoping it works out. And if it does, yay me. And will I be gloating on the way up? I will. I'll be going, ah, look at the balance of my credit card. <laughs> okay. Acts 2 nowadays is not preached with Exodus 20. It is preached alone, standing alone. They just look at it alone. They don't even, they, they read Joel and they don't even care. They don't even see Exodus 20. They don't see the law of the altar. They don't see the, the commandments given, the law given, the problem. All they do is they focus on two or three words in it and they end up in a heaping pile of illiteracy, of foolishness. As a quick aside, really fast here, and I'm going to go fast, we're almost wrapped up, and, and you'll be glad to know that, which means how far did I get? Not very far, so it'll happen again next week. As a quick aside, there are distinctions in Scripture that must be understood to be distinct. I won't put them on the board. I don't have time. Uh, maybe I'll do it next week. What I mean by that, let me say it again. Distinctions in Scripture that must be understood to be distinct. You have to know they're distinct. I have distinctions, and you have to know they're distinctions. You may see them and not know you have to know in order to make any progress as a student of the Bible. What I mean by that, and I hope you want to be a student of the Bible, what I mean by that is what I call chronisters know the difference list. It's a long list. I can't give them all out today, but I'll give you an example. You need to know the difference between Israel and the church. You will find scriptures that are speaking about Israel. You will find scriptures that are speaking about the church. Israel is the wife in symbolism. The church is the bride. They are distinct. Now, are there any Jews in the bride? Yes. Why? Because they're saved Jews. Do they want to be in the bride? Never met one that does. They want to be in the wife. But they don't get to be in the wife, and they're not happy about that. I've never met one Arnold Fruchtenbaum, bless his heart, brilliant man of God, wants to fight. He wants to go. He wants to... You guys go. He knows his rapture doctrine better than any man may be alive. But he doesn't want to be raptured. He wants a rifle, and he wants to go to Israel, and he wants to fight. And he's, he's not happy about it. And they're all that way. 
But know the difference between Israel and the church. Know the difference between physical reality and spiritual reality, or the ultimate reality. The physical reality is not the ultimate reality. It is, it is here to develop your mind, to renew and change your mind, and make your mind uh, a powerful thing of understanding. But there's a, a spiritual reality and a physical reality. When you read the Bible, know the difference. Know the difference between death and dying. This really causes people problems. Um, and last week I, was, I spent a lot of time, not a lot of time, 15 minutes talking to those folks about that. Death and dying, what's the difference? Dying is a process. Death is a state. Understand the difference between death and dying. God saves from death. He didn't save himself from dying, did he? You know the difference immediately between physical death and spiritual death. When you read the Bible, you'll see death. Don't conclude spiritual death. It could simply be physical death. Not the same. Understand law and grace. Let me put it better. Law or grace. You're either, you're either going to die in law or some works-based system of salvation, or you're going to live in a grace-based system of salvation. So also call it death or life, really. Understand hearing and speaking. That's Acts 2, right? Hearing and speaking. Good and evil. Inside of time and outside of time. There's your free will omniscience of God problem solved for you. Understand the uncreated or the creator. And the created, or the creation. Understand type and anti-type, the difference. And the five resurrections, they're distinct. People tell me, ah, I can't wait for the resurrection. I always say, which one? Oh, there's five of them, pick one. I really love, I'm looking forward to the kingdom of heaven. Which one? Five of them. Which one are you going to look forward to? Know the difference between the temporal and the eternal. Know the difference between salvation and sanctification. Last week, that's what was going on so much. Israel, they didn't understand the difference between Israel and the church, and they thought fellowship or witness. Can you fall out of fellowship with God? Yes, you can. Can you fall out of salvation with God? No, you can't. When you fall out of fellowship with God, do you think you've lost your salvation? Yes, if you don't understand Romans. But all you did was fall out of fellowship. There's a difference between sanctification and salvation, or fellowship and salvation, or witness and salvation. And the last one that applies to Acts 2 is, for today is plural and singular. Understand the difference between plural and singular. And this is a big problem in the church today, all of that list. Very, very, very few know the differences or the distinctions of that list. Chronister's list of differences. Did I make it up? Hmm, maybe. Is there any money in it for me? No. Whole denominations have come into being based on not knowing the differences. Whole denominations have risen up. And you need to know where, and, and nowhere is that more demonstrated than Acts chapter 2. A whole denomination has come out of Acts chapter 2 when they don't understand any of the differences. Okay, here comes the obligatory list with the compulsory obvious questions. And I'll just run them down and next week I'll put them on the board. The day of Shavuot. Shavuot. Did God begin his betrothal to the church on one of his own feast days? In other words, did the church start on a feast day? What do you think? 
Did he pick one of his seven feast days to start the church? Or did he pick another day? Do you know whole denominations have started up saying God did not pick one of his own feast days to start his own church? He did not pick a feast day that corresponds with Israel. He picked another day, completely some other day, but he did not pick a feast day. Do you think that makes sense? That's called mid-dispensationalism, and that was for Jennifer in Arizona. The four signs, exactly the same signs as Exodus 20, occur in Acts 2. We have this speaking happening. And these are Jews from every nation because it's a pilgrimage feast day. And they hear a trumpet sound, this sound they hear, and the multitude goes to where the other signs are. And they heard, very important, it is a miracle of what? It is a miracle of hearing. And what did they hear? They heard languages. What language did they hear? They heard their own language. So somebody got up and spoke, and it was a Galilean. And Galileans were not known to be the brightest bulbs in the building. Not talking the sharpest knives here. These guys were considered the uh, the working class, the framing carpenters, the foundation people, if you will. and, And the fishermen. And they stood up, and they started speaking Galilean Hebrew which is a pidgin Hebrew, if you will. And what did the people around them, these devout men, these incredible scholars, what did they hear? Because they're not from Israel. What did they hear? They were from all over the place. Read where they were. Look it up. What did they hear? They didn't hear Galilean Hebrew. They heard what? Their own language. That's the miracle. Know the difference between speaking and hearing. You can speak, but if somebody doesn't hear his own language, then you are not doing something. What are you not doing? You are not doing one of the four signs of Exodus 20. The the issue is hearing in your own language. Know the difference between tongue, plural and singular, Know the difference between tongue and tongues. When the Bible says tongues, what does it mean? It means languages. One of the thunderings of Exodus 20 means languages. When it says tongue, what does it mean? Doesn't mean languages. What does it mean? It means gibberish. So there's a difference between the plural and the singular. You would think that I would want to know that if I was going to start a denomination based on the word tongue or tongues. I think I'd want to be languages and not gibberish. How's my mail going to look this week? Know the differences between plural and singular. And then this very last thing, and I left out a lot of it because the band's pushing me off the stage again. Why are they doing it? Because they care about you guys. Because they know I can keep going, don't they? But uh, this wonderful thing. All of these four signs and then this amazing question. They were all amazed and perplexed. Verse 12, Acts 2, saying to one another, whatever could this mean? 
these languages that we're hearing in our own birth language. We're hearing a language. We're going around finding out you heard your language. I heard, see here, I heard Libyan. You heard Roman. I heard, uh, I heard uh, Medi. I'm a Mede. I'm an Egyptian. I heard Egyptian. Those are Galilean fishermen and they're speaking every nation under heaven's language. That, by the way, is exactly what happened in Exodus 20 if you read the historical accounts. That's the thunderings of Exodus 20. Next week we'll get into that and get it all figured out. But for today, know the difference between plural and singular Know the relationship between Exodus 20 and Acts 2. And know the differences between hearing something and saying something. How easy is it to say something that no one understands? Is that a miracle? I do it every Sunday. That's not a miracle. Where's the miracle? The miracle is that I say something and you hear what? You hear God's wonderful works. You hear the Scripture. Now what do you need? You need somebody to explain it to you. Do you need somebody to translate it? No. You heard it in your own language. You know what he said, but what do you need? Somebody to explain it to you. The difference between translation and interpretation. It's a big difference. Know the differences. And then you will understand Acts 2. And then you will know, understand Exodus 20. And then you will understand Exodus 21. And then you will understand why he wrote, Therefore you are saved by faith at Romans 5.1. That's how it all works. Rise and be dismissed.